0: We're in a series called Relentless Love and this is uh, the second week we've been looking at the scriptures over the summer we will be for the next few weeks at some of the texts that explicitly show how from the beginning God has been relentlessly pursuing us with his great love and his great grace. Now, there's two ways really to read the Bible and approach the Bible. The first way is that this is a book about principles to be applied. And the second way is that this is a book about a person to be believed. And when we approach the book like this is a book about a person, about Jesus Christ, about God's great love, and about what we are to believe about what Jesus says and does, that changes us. That transforms absolutely everything. And it changes the way that we come to church on Sunday, and it changes the way we think about this thing called church. This is not a weekly exercise of learning how to behave, which is what I think most North Americans are convinced churches. This is a weekly gracious invitation to behold God's great love, His great grace, His great love for you. There's not a person in this room that doesn't have things that make them lay in bed at night if we think about it long enough and be worried, concerned, afraid. There's not a person in this room that isn't dealing with struggle, suffering, frustration. There's not a person in this room that doesn't look in the mirror and say, why am I still dealing with this? Why is this problem still haunting my life? Why is my body not functioning the way... There's not a person in this room that doesn't have the week in and week out, day in and day out, the struggles that come with being a human being on this planet called Earth. There's not a person in this room that doesn't look at their news feed And read something that makes the heart break and make them want to cry. That makes their blood boil and make them angry. That make them say, what is wrong with this world? And we come every seven days to stop and to rest. And to get our hearts and our minds recalibrated and reoriented. And to get our souls recalibrated and reoriented. To not only the good news of what is true, but the good news of the promise of what God is actually doing with humanity. And how we make sense of our life in the context of God's great grace and God's great plan. Years ago, C.S. Lewis uh, wrote a book called Mere Christianity. And in it, he tells a story about how a uh, Royal Air Force officer got up and stormed out of one of his sermons. And I'm going to read that for you now. Uh, Not because I think somebody's going to get up and storm out of this sermon. I I hope not anyways, but let's take a look at this before we go to our text this morning. He writes, In a way, I quite remember why some people are put off by theology. I remember once I was giving a talk to the Royal Air Force, and an old, hard-bitten officer got up, and he said, I have no use for all that stuff. But mind you, I am a religious man, too. I know there's a God. I felt him out alone in the desert at night. The tremendous mystery. And that's why I don't believe all your neat little dogmas and formulas about him. Anyone who's met the real thing recognizes that they see all these dogmas and doctrines that seem so petty and pedantic and unreal. Now, in a sense, I quite agreed with the man. I think that he probably had a real experience of God in the desert. And then when he turned from that real experience to the Christian creeds, I think he really was turning from something real to something less real. And in the same way, if a man has once looked at the Atlantic from the beach, and then he goes away and he looks at a map of the Atlantic, he will also be turning from something very real to something less real, turning from real waves to a bit of colored paper. But here comes the point. The map is admittedly only colored paper. But there are two things you have to remember about it. In the first place, it's what hundreds and thousands of people found out by sailing the real Atlantic. In that way, it has behind it masses of experience, just as real as the one you could have from the beach only, while yours was a single glimpse. The map fits all those different experiences together. And in the second place, if you want to go anywhere, the map is absolutely necessary. As long as you are content with walks on the beach, your own glimpses are far more fun than looking at a map. But the map is going to be far more useful than walks on the beach if you want to get to the Americas. Now theology is the map. As we come to God's word this morning and we read Genesis 15... This is the map. We've all had great experiences, perhaps, of feeling like, sensing like God was with us at a time in our life. Maybe in prayer, maybe in tragedy, we felt like we weren't alone. We had that experience of God, which is beautiful. But we turn to this map that speaks to something far bigger than what your experience or mine can give us. Particularly when your experience and mine are tragic, are hard, are frustrating. We come to God's map. Genesis chapter 15, starting in verse 7. And God said to Abraham, I am the Lord who brought you out from the Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But Abraham said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? And God said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove and a pigeon. And he brought him all these and cut them in half. And he laid each half over each other, but he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses of Abraham, drove them away. But the sun was going down, and a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, the dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. And then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for four hundred years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. And as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace, and you shall be buried at a good old age. And they came back here in the fourth generation. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying, To your offspring I give this land. From the river of Egypt to the great river, to the river Euphrates, to the land of the Kenites, the Chazazites, the Kadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, and Raphim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Geshittites, and the Jebusites. This is God's word. Now we come to this very strange, very gory, very graphic point in scripture. What, is, what does this mean and why does it matter? What does the scripture mean and why does it matter to your life in 2016? Here's the sermon in a sentence today. God moves towards us in grace and he restores us by grace so we can live to the glory of his grace. This text, we're going to ask it these questions that I just gave you. We're going to ask this passage that we just read. How is it that God moves us towards us in grace? How is it that God has restored us by grace? And how do we live to the glory of his grace? So first of all, we find it the way that God moves toward us in grace is that He moves in spite of us. So leading up to this point, God's done everything for Abraham. He's given him the faith, He's created the faith, He's literally handed Abraham the faith, and then Abraham believed, and with the faith that God gave him, and God said, I'll call that righteousness. God's been moving towards Abraham this entire time, the same way that He moves towards us. In verse 7, God says to him, I'm the Lord that brought you out to give you the land. God is the one doing the leading, God is the one doing the giving in Abraham's life. God is the one doing the leading, God is the one doing the giving in your life. And there's the great relentless love that's on display here. Here's what we see. It's God's gracious pattern right from the absolute beginning. For 40 generations, God is moving through scripture, right? For here we find him choosing Abraham. Later he's going to choose Isaac. Then he's going to choose Jacob. Then he's going to choose Joseph. Then he's going to choose Moses, and he's going to continually choose people all throughout all of redemptive history until he chooses a little teenager named Mary who's going to say, let it be to me according to your word. God has been in the business of moving towards his children from the beginning in his gracious and relentless love. In verse 8, Abraham goes, well, how do I know I'm going to possess this land? Notice Abraham's question. God says, I'm going to give you something. And then Abraham says, how do I know I'm going to possess it? And we're the same way. God, I don't understand. I'm not sure. I'm looking at my life. I'm looking. I don't know how you could be with me because things are pretty horrible. And, uh, and, but look at the words that God responds with. He's saying, I'm the one that brought you out. I'm the one that is giving you the land. And uh, it's because of his great grace. And then God goes even further with this after he says, I'm going to give you the land. And he says, oh, and by the way, your kids are going to leave me and they're going to serve other gods and they're going to be, they're going to stop worshiping me and they're going to worship other things and they're going to be in slavery for 400 years, but I'm going to save them again anyways. You see this? Right when God is about to make a promise to Abraham so, his great, great, so that God's great grace could get to you and I through Christ alone. He's moving. He's moving towards Abraham. Abraham is like us. He's asking questions. He's not sure what's going on. And then God is, God is continually moving. But then as he does this, he, he says, I'm going to save them. Anyways, we're only 15 chapters into the Bible. We're only 15 chapters into the, the whole Bible. It's the 66 books of God moving towards His unfaithful children, because he's faithful, is amazing, relentless love. This is the way that God moves towards us in grace. This is the pattern of grace on display. The scriptures reveal a God of relentless love that's constantly chasing down and rescuing his children of relentless idolatry, which is really good news for you and I. It's really good news for those of us who make a habit out of making gods out of our careers, gods out of our relationships, gods out of our children, gods out of our reputations, gods out of... Uh, our ministry, God's out of our toys. It's really good news for us that God has a track record of chasing down and rescuing his children whose hearts go after other things. It's really good news for those of us who have, who have children who have chased after other things. And, and even today, their God is a particular thing that they've, their whole life is revolving around. And they're not resting to the worship of the true God, but they've made some other small thing God. And they're hoping it will satisfy them. It's really good news. It allows for you and I to pray for our children who wander with great boldness to the God who from the beginning of time has been chasing after those who are chasing after other things in His great grace and in His great love. This is how God's grace moves towards us. It comes to us absolutely in spite of us. And the reason why this relentless nature is so important is because Christian faith is not founded on one part grace, one part obedience. It is not. It is not. It is founded on God's grace. Beginning to end. That produces all kinds of obedience, but our, our faith is not founded on obedience. And it's so important for us to see this because it had to be all grace. Um, the gospel of grace doesn't downplay God's obedient, uh, godly obedience at all. It actually propels it. And as our hearts are increasingly gripped by this great grace, then our hearts increasingly want to glorify God. But in the end... When we are with God and when we're with Jesus, we are not going to high-five Jesus and say, We did it! Psh! No high-fives in heaven. None of you are high-fiving Jesus. There's no team justification. It's not, Well, I love how you got me started with the cross. Psh! And then, did you see how I, like, just took it to the house after you got me started? We made such a great team. There's no, never, it's not going to happen. We're just going to be, we're just going to, when we see Jesus, we're going to be on knees and be like, I'm with you. Thank you for everything front to back everything right this is this is the, the the beauty of god's great grace and this is what we see so this is why it's so important the pattern of abraham's life is the pattern of the old testament it's the pattern of the new testament church it's the pattern of your life it's the pattern of grace God moves towards you in grace and he restores you by grace to free you so you can live to the glory of his grace. And he does that so that through the pain and through the sorrow and through all the things that you go through in your life that make you say life on planet earth is hard. It's, it's so that through all of that, you can actually live with great peace and great joy to the glory of God's grace. That's how his grace moves towards us. Now, how have we been restored by this grace? Let's look back down at this text and say, how is God actually restoring us? If he's coming towards us like he came toward Abraham, totally undeserved. And how is he restoring us? Well, he's going to restore us the same way he restored his children through Abraham. So we look at this text here. He restored us by providing the perfection for us that he required from us. You hear me say that all the time. You hear me say that all the time, that God provided the perfection that he required. The perfection for us that he required from us. Now... This, what we're looking at, is an ancient ceremony. It's bloody and gory and it's hard for us to understand. Abraham is cutting animals in half. There is blood everywhere. What is going on here? This is what they used to call in the ancient world a Caesarean vassal treaty. Which means I'm going to make some uh, commitments. You're going to make some commitments. And if I don't hold up my end, this is going to happen to you. And if you don't hold up your end, this is going to happen to you. That's the structure of the treaty. That's why when God said, bring me the animals, notice God doesn't tell Abraham what to do with the animals. If you go ahead and look at, you'll see, God doesn't say, and then do this and then do that. Abraham knows what's going on here. Because this is what kings used to do. They would make a vassal treaty. Here's what my kingdom's going to do. Here's what your kingdom's going to do. If either of us don't hold up our end of the bargain, you see these bloody animals on the ground? Yeah, that's what's going to happen to you. That's what's going on here. So Abraham is thinking... God's going to make a commitment, I'm going to make a commitment, and it's going to, And this is how this is going to work. And that's the structure of Exodus 20, this Vassal Treaty, that's the structure of the entire book of Deuteronomy, which for those of you interested, you know, the word Deuteronomy means deuteronomos, the second reading of the law. So the whole book of Deuteronomy is you do this and God will do that. If you don't do this, God's going to do that. That's The, the covenant under the dispensation of the law was if-then. If you do this, then God will do that. If you don't, it's game over. That was the dispensation under the law. You and I live under the dispensation of the gospel of grace, which we're about to unpack here. You're you're about to see. It's a great picture of it. So this was basically a legalized self-curse, and both parties would participate. This would happen. But what happens? What happens is, in verse 12, God causes Abraham to take a nap. It says a deep sleep came over Abraham, this great darkness, deep sleep. Again, we're 15 chapters into the Bible, and there's two guys that have already had a deep sleep come over them, Adam and now Abraham. What is God up to with this deep sleep? He's like knocking people out, right? God's like, the only way for me to get this done is to do this myself. That's that's what's literally going on. In the Hebrew, the term deep sleep means to sleep the sleep of death. So when, an, when a, when a first-century Hebrew kid heard, had this story read to them, and they heard, and a deep sleep came over Abraham, they would all be thinking, whoa, it's like he's dead. It's like, and a deep sleep came over Adam. Whoa, divine anesthetic. Surgery's about to happen. Right? Why did God make a deep sleep come over Adam and Abraham? Because in both cases, God was going to do something that only God could do. In Adam's case, it was to give him his wife, and in Abraham's case, you're about to see right now as we unpack this, what God, only God can do. So Abraham's contribution to God's promise was a nap. Had to be. That was his contribution. Why was that? In verse 17, it says that God, in the form of this, he uses the language of this flaming torch and this smoking pot, God passes through the pieces. But Abraham doesn't pass through the pieces. Abraham's taken a nap. What is that? That's grace on display. That's God saying, if this covenant isn't met by either party, then just like the blood was shed in these animals, my blood will be shed. Not yours, Abraham. You take a nap. Because you can't do what only I can do. And so... God doesn't allow Abraham to participate because the only thing that a perfect and a holy God will accept is perfection. Nothing less than perfection. The only thing Abraham had to contribute is the only thing you and I have to contribute, which is not perfection, unless you're completely delusional. It's progress. Hey God, I'm doing better today than I was last week. Hey, I'm really growing in the Lord. I used to be this 10 years ago, but now... Hey, listen... That's amazing, and to be celebrated to the glory of God, and I'm not minimizing the work of his grace in our life. So don't hear me say that. But hear me say this. It doesn't matter how much progress you and I have when God requires perfection. So therefore, since progress is all Abraham had, take a nap, Abraham. I got this. Take a nap, church. Look at it this way. Abraham is sleeping a sleep of death. What does the Apostle Paul say in Ephesians? We just did our Ephesians study a couple weeks ago. How does Paul describe us in Ephesians 2? Born dead in sin. Abraham is sleeping a sleep of death, and God raises him in grace. You and I were born dead in sin, sleeping our sleep of death. God raises us in grace. Do you see the pattern? Do you see the one-way grace and love of God coming towards you minus your merit? This is the picture that we get here in this text. It's absolutely amazing so that's the structure of the covenant and that's the way that God uh, that's the way that God comes to us in this great grace because God passing through the blood foreshadowed the cross because God through Christ uh, shed his own blood and at the cross God poured out his wrath on Christ so that he could pour out his grace on you and this is what this is what the beauty of the, the ramifications of this text end up kind of teaching us and end up showing us. So Christ provided the full payment with his work. It's not a down payment that you build on with your work. And it's critical to understand uh, God's grace in this way, that we see that our, the foundation of our faith is not one part grace, one part obedience. It's all God's grace, which, it, which in turn produces obedience because our hearts are set free by the, by the glory of the one who, who saved us. And so this is what we see in this text. See, if Abraham actually participated, it would have been game over. Just like if you think that you're participating so that one day, in the glorious return of the Lord, you know, you're contributing to your salvation, it would be game over. Abraham just, it was, what was it? It was three chapters ago when his wife comes to him and says, God promises a kid, I'm not having a kid, sleep with the maid. Abraham's like, okay, no hesitation. Game of thrones. Takes one for the team. I mean, it would have been, if Abraham, if it was up to him, it would have been game over. Then, twice in Abraham's life, and I'm not, uh, I'm getting ahead of myself. Twice in Abraham's life, he gives his wife Sarah away to save his hide. Twice. First, he does it in Genesis 12. Everybody sees Sarah beautiful, and he's like, oh my gosh, they're going to kill me for my wife. Say, you're my sister gives his wife away to the Pharaoh's harem to save his butt, the father of our faith. I'm not minimizing that he wasn't the father of our faith as it relates to that he did actually answer the call of God. He did. But notice, the father of our faith was also a great sinner. He gives her away, and he gives his wife away in, in chapter 12. And approximately 25 years later, in chapter 20, he does it again. Right? Right? Talk again. He's in another land, and they see his wife, and he's thinking they're going to kill me for my gorgeous wife, and what does he do? He here's. It's not like, well, you know, I'm I'm so sanctified now. You know, I know I gave you away, honey, 25 years ago, but I'm a different man. Now I'm going to lay down my life for my bride. No! He doesn't. He does it again, a second time. And so... Redemption history does not reveal a faithful God partnering with faithful people. It reveals a faithful God saving unfaithful people. Because in both cases, God saved Sarah out of this ridiculous scenario. By God's grace, Abraham did answer the call to leave his home and lead God's people. But Jesus is the greater Abraham. Because Jesus answered God's call to leave his heavenly home and save God's people. But instead of giving up his bride to save his life... Jesus gave up his life to save his bride. He's the greater Abraham. We read the Old Testament not so that we come out of each account and say, how can I be more like Abraham? We actually read it and realize, boy, we wish there was somebody better than Abraham. And there was, and his name is Jesus, the hero of the story, the one who's come at you with this great grace. So finally, let's look at this final question, which is, how do we live then to the glory of this grace? What does this really matter today? I'm reading this old text from the Old Testament about God's grace on display with Abraham, but what does this matter today? It matters because the grace of God means we can live our lives with humble confidence from gospel freedom. To make sense of your life, to make sense of what you're going to do on Monday, to make sense of the job you have or that you don't have or your family or your rel- I mean, to make sense of your life, you have to make sense of it in light of the plan that God had from the beginning. Because remember, God doesn't exist to make our lives better. I know that's a North American idea. That's why God exists, right? To clearly make the 80 years we have here if we live that long. I mean, that's really what God's up to, making our life better. No, he created us for something, and then he gave us everything, and then we broke everything, and then he's been moving in grace ever since, because he's, getting, he's not on plan B He's taken us back to plan A. The Bible starts with a conclusion. It's good. That's where your life is headed. Back to full restoration. Jared Wilson wrote a book called The Story of Everything, and in it he says this, there's not one square inch of your life, there's not one square inch of your house, of this earth, of your gifts, of your ideas, of your ingenuity, of your creativity. There's not an inch of the things you enjoy, of your pets. that God doesn't say, mine." There's not a spirit. He created all of it, and he's going to restore all of it. This is the glorious trajectory of where our lives are headed. The mandate from mankind before sin was to use our intellect and our gifts and our creativity and our imaginations and all the resources that God put in this earth— to create things and to enjoy rich relationships in a world of no evil, no suffering, no violence, no disease, no death. That was the plan. We weren't going to walk around naked in a garden forever, if that's what you think the original plan was. Mankind today is using a fraction. We are using the residue of what God actually intended for us to be able to accomplish and do to the glory of his grace as we rest and worship him. So that's what God's up to restoring. Restoring. We don't have a coloring book view of the end of the Bible. We are not floating around on clouds doing nothing, singing songs and blowing trumpets dressed like cupids for all of eternity. That's not heaven. This realm will be peeled back and God will will be with us, with man, Revelation 21, and he will restore all things. And so this gives us a completely different view, a a confidence and a humility through which we go through life. We can't even imagine that world, but God can because he created it and he's restoring it. It gives great context to whatever you're up to on Monday morning. And God is taking everything that's objectively true about his grace but he's making it experientially true in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. And so we realize you know what I'm not better than anyone. And because I'm not better than anyone I'm I'm forgiven by grace I can extend grace. And I also recognize that because I'm a child of God nobody's better than me. And I didn't deserve the grace I have. And therefore, because nobody's better than me, and, I don't, and I'm under, sitting in undeserved grace, I can share the gospel with anyone. Boldly. From humility, but boldly. Because I'm a child and a recipient of this great grace. I can humbly extend grace, I can share the gospel of grace, because we recognize the nature of this grace. See, if we think we contributed, this is why I'm taking us to this text to see Abraham didn't contribute anything and neither did you. If you think you contributed to your faith in some way, if you think, you know, well, I, was, I humbled myself. I was this kind of a person. I was there. I was a, me, me, me. I did this and that's why I'm sitting here in Redeemer this morning. If you think you contributed, you're going to have very a lot of difficulty being humble and confident because you're going to look at others and you're going to have difficulty being humble because you're going to think you somehow contributed ...to this grace, and you don't think they're the kind of person that would. So instead of humbly and boldly sharing the gospel... ...when those opportunities present themselves in our lives... ...you're going to be like, I'm not sure they're the kind of person that would contribute to grace. I'm not sure they're the kind of person that would respond the way that I did. But you and I are sitting in undeserved grace. And so it creates a great humility in us towards others but also a great confidence through which we go through life. And I close with this. George Whitfield, who was one of the preachers, great preachers of the 7th century, 17th century Great Awakening, said this. God alone saves. Therefore, let us preach the gospel as far and wide as our voices can carry. God moved toward us in grace, and God restores us by grace. So church, you are now free to live to the glory of his grace. Let's pray.